millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our friend Gonzalo Lira, the American broadcaster, is murdered in a Ukrainian dungeon. His president, Joe Biden, has his blood on his hands. The Hundred Day War in Gaza today saw biblical scenes of famine with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people on the beach on Al Rashid Street running towards a reported food truck which had appeared, which was then gunned down by the Zionist occupation army killing several, wounding many more. 30,000 people now dead in a hundred days. If this is not genocide, as Gideon Levy asked, well, exactly what is it? And the hundred year war against the people of the Yemen has resumed again. Just think about this point. British forces have been killing people in Yemen all of my life, all of my life. Think about it and fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy night. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. We would need to double the length of the show tonight to even begin to do justice to the huge number of extremely critical issues that have emerged since I last spoke to you. But this show is dedicated to the 55-year-old American correspondent, a regular guest on this show, a podcaster, a broadcaster, Gonzalo Lira Jr., who appeared so many times on this show and racked up many millions of views and will go on doing so. Because although the Ukrainian regime, the gangster, ultra-nationalist stroke, Nazi regime in Kiev, have succeeded in murdering Gonzalo, the things that he said during his period as a correspondent of ours and indeed under his own steam, under his round tables and all the many, many broadcasts that he gave are as pertinent today now that he is dead as they were when he was alive and speaking. Gonzalo Lira leaves a widowed wife and fatherless children and Joe Biden could have extricated him from that Ukrainian dungeon with a simple telephone call. But he refused to do so. The State Department refused to help him. The American embassy in Kiev refused to visit him, refused to check on what was happening to him. He was tortured, he was extorted, and finally he was murdered. He made a brief and valiant attempt to escape on a motorcycle, reaching all the way to the Hungarian border before being captured and taken back behind bars, where he has now died. Died doesn't do it. He was murdered. 
he was killed by a client regime of the United States, an American citizen, an American journalist, about which we hear blink and cackle so often that journalism is not a crime, that journalists are not criminals, that the United States enjoys a constitutionally enshrined right to report, right to speak and write freely, right to be able to read other people's speech and other people's writing. It is all a lie. It is all lipstick on a pig, the pig of so-called Western democracy, which now stands in the dock before the world, utterly bereft of any credibility, any shred of moral or intellectual uh, logic or consistency or feeling or empathy. They are monsters. We are ruled by monsters in Western countries. That's why uh, they are all ranged against the free republic of South Africa, which had to fight for decades, including in armed struggle, to overthrow the apartheid regime, which was the last iteration of colonial rule in South Africa. That's why they are all ranged against South Africa. That's why the British broadcast media did not broadcast live a single minute of South Africa's case at The Hague in which they leveled a devastating indictment against the genocide taking place in Gaza, the horrors of East Jerusalem, the mass murder in the West Bank, the BBC and Sky News did not broadcast one live minute of South Africa's long day in court and then broadcast live all day Israel's rebuttal of a case that the British broadcasters had not even shown to their viewers in the case of the BBC to the taxpayers who on pain of imprisonment are coerced and forced, bullied and browbeaten to fund lavishly to the tune of many billions of pounds per year. This is a betrayal, not just of the BBC's supposed charter. It is a betrayal of the British people, an ancient and free land which stood for a time alone for liberty and freedom whilst Nazism in its jackboots was at the Channel ports in France, about which more later. The British people have been betrayed not just by British broadcasters, but by the British political class. All of my life, and I mean all of my life, the British armed forces have been killing Arab Muslims. All of it. I was born in 1954. In 1956, in an illegal conspiracy, Britain and France and Israel invaded Egypt and tried to capture from the Egyptian government of the hero Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Suez Canal itself. A Suez Canal now effectively closed to British and American ships 
as well, of course, as ships to or from Israel. I watched as a 14-year-old the Yemeni people rise up against British colonial rule, exercised by Scotsmen in kilts playing bagpipes in the port of Aden. I watched as a 14-year-old whilst Mad Mitchell, Colonel Colin Mitchell, fresh, if that's the word, from murdering Koreans in large numbers with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders in the illegal war to try to maintain the partition of the Korean Peninsula. Mitchell in charge, ordering the gunning down of brave Yemeni people who had risen up to kick out their colonial occupiers. People of Yemen were occupied by Britain for 130 years. And Britain is now back at war with Yemen. A completely illegal war, which didn't even receive the rubber stamp, for that is all that it would have been, of British parliamentary approval, which doesn't have a shred of legality from the United Nations Security Council. Not only did they not get a decision of the, Euro the United Nations Security Council in favor of this violent attack on one of the poorest countries in the world, they didn't even ask for one. They didn't even put it to the United Nations Security Council, which alone has the power to endorse military action of this kind. Unless it's self-defense, of course. Except Britain is thousands of miles away from the Red Sea and the coast of Yemen. Except no British shipping had been harmed in any way. No British citizen had been killed. No citizen of anywhere had been killed. Not one death in the Yemen blockade of Israel to try and force a ceasefire in a conflict which has already cost more than 100,000 casualties. At least 30,000 dead. At least 60,000 wounded and unable to be treated in barely functioning hospitals without electricity, without medicine, and increasingly without doctors because Israel is making a particular habit of killing doctors and killing journalists. And if you think that that is a coincidence, I have a bridge here in London that I can sell you going cheap. The great British half-Palestinian surgeon Abu Sita speaking in London at yet another mammoth demonstration of the British people's rejection of all of this at the weekend says that Israel is torturing doctors. Speaking of which, I have just seen a most distressing video of the former Moats medic, 
and my former colleague, former colleague, Dr. Ranjit Bra, an NHS surgeon with his shoulder out of joint, with handcuffs, handcuffing him behind his back, leaving his four-year-old child on the pavement of central London yesterday and now held overnight, apparently under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. His crime, I don't know, standing next to a leaflet which had words on it which the Metropolitan Police did not like? Is this what our fathers fought for? Did my grandfathers give their blood at Dunkirk, at El Alamein, at Monte Cassino? They gave their blood for freedom. So the NHS surgeons can be handcuffed, their shoulders dislocated, their babies abandoned on the street because of words on a leaflet. This country is going to the dogs. It is riven with social and cultural and racial disharmony. Our people are cold. 14 million of them are in poverty. Some are hungry. So it was a good time for Mr. Sunak from accounts to go to Kiev and hand over another 2.5 billion pounds of our taxes. I was in the London borough of Newham at length on Friday. I tell you what we really could have done with that two and a half billion pounds to attack the public squalor everywhere visible in the East End of London, as in so many towns and cities around this country. But we've got money to give to the crooks in Kiev. We've got money to burn setting fire to people in Yemen. This country is going to the dogs, not just because it has an unelected, rancid little inky-fingered Indian clerk as our Prime Minister, but because we have a King's Council, white as the driven snow, leader of the Labour opposition, who's a traitor to everything that the Labour Party is supposed to stand for, and a traitor to everything that could justifiably be called the British values for which we stood and fought during the Second World War. Keir Starmer, who once said Britain should never go to war again without parliamentary approval, gave his 100% support to the new, renewed British war on Yemen, to punish the people of Yemen for being the only Arab Muslim country to actually do something to try and stop the slaughter in Gaza. And his little amenuensis, his little Robin, Wes Streeting, goes on television this morning justifying the attack on Yemen and calls it 
an open and shut case, vital for Britain's national defence. You could not make all of this up. And you have no need to. It's happening in real time, even though it is rejected by tens of millions in Britain, scores of millions in the United States, tens of millions in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, all over these countries that are taking us into war after war after war. It is extraordinary that we went to war to protect shipping containers. Only shipping containers connected to Israel. But we will not even demand a ceasefire in the Israeli genocide that has killed and maimed and lost more than 100,000 people in just 100 days. On the contrary, it's not just that we won't demand a ceasefire. We are fully participating in the slaughter of the innocents. Today on Al-Rashid Street, on the beachfront in Gaza, a street I have walked and driven a hundred times, tens of thousands of people were pictured, filmed, running along the street, running along the beach, tens of thousands of them, because a rumor had arisen that a food truck to feed the multitudes of starving people, four out of every five starving people in the world today are in the Gaza Strip. A piece of land 25 miles long and five and a half miles wide. Four out of every five starving people in the world are there. When the occupation army saw the crowds running for the food truck in desperation for something to eat, for their families, they opened fire and mowed them down. All day and every day, little children are being murdered and maimed. Their mothers are being murdered and maimed. And the Western media and its political class, if I can dignify it with that name, slaves to Joe Biden's administration in Washington, slaves to the hated Benjamin Netanyahu regime, are fully complicit in the murder. My last words are about South Africa itself. I have blood in the game, my own blood on the floor of Guguletu police station in Cape Town. Irish blood on my maternal line. And when I saw this dazzlingly able team of journalists, of lawyers, black African lawyers, 
Asian South African Muslim lawyers, Irish lawyers, lay out the case that Israel is guilty of genocide, it would have brought a tear to a glass eye in perfect legal language, in impeccable intellectual logic, the great South African legal team, led by their minister of law, made a case that simply cannot be answered and was not answered. The South African case that Israel is guilty of genocide is, as Gideon Levy, the greatest of all Israelis, the Israeli journalist from Haaretz newspaper said, if this is not genocide, there is no such thing as genocide. And there never has been any such thing as genocide. If it is not genocide, for everyone from the president and the prime minister and the defense minister and the chief of the army and ministers galore and members of the Knesset galore and military officers on the ground, if they are all singing from an Old Testament hymn book that they intend to clear finish the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, if that is not genocidal intent, followed by acts to carry out that genocidal intent, visible to half the world already, on their telephone, on their computer, if not on their television screen, if that is not genocide, there is no such thing as genocide. Now, the best of the British, myself and my wife included, my children included, were on the streets of Britain on these demonstrations in virtually every town and city, the length and breadth of the land at the weekend. And I will again be on the Birmingham demonstration next Saturday. And I invite you all to join me but one of the best of the British, the Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, was sleeping on the pavement in The Hague so that he could attend this genocide trial and bring us by far and away the finest coverage of what was happening there. And you're lucky he's up first as our first guest tonight on the mother of all talk shows. Stay tuned. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Craig Murray is a man of great intellect a great uh, integrity, and perhaps, greatest of all, a man of great courage. And despite being Dunsartan Ash, he was actually sleeping on the pavement in a sleeping bag outside of the Palace of Justice in The Hague so that he could report to his many followers on Twitter and on his other platforms and now report to you about what he saw there. Please welcome the Honourable Craig Murray. Craig, thanks for uh, joining us. Um, I hope your bones have thawed. Uh, I'm past the age now where I can safely sleep on a sidewalk, on a pavement, in a sleeping bag in The Hague in January, but you did it. So before you get into the nitty-gritty of the case itself, kindly paint for us a picture of what the whole scene was like, of what the whole experience was like in The Hague. It was extremely difficult to get in. I mean, they, the public gallery admits 14 people for a case of, of world importance. 14 people were, were allowed in. Um, on the first day, there were eventually perhaps 400 people in the queue for those 14 places. Um, I had to get there literally at, at two o'clock in the morning and start um, queuing up. Um, and that day, that first day, I didn't have a sleeping bag and it was um, minus five. It was very cold. Um, and I stood there till half past six in the morning when they finally gave out the passes for people to be admitted. But the, it was a good atmosphere. Um, all 400 people who were trying to get in, every single one of them was a was a fervent supporter of the Palestinians, I think I would say. Um, there was an excitement about it. People believed this was a chance for justice, a, a chance to actually do something, uh, and a chance to hold the perpetrators of genocide to account. Um, it's also worth saying that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Jean-Luc Mélenchon both turned up uh, to be in the public gallery. Uh, both of them slightly cheated in that they had somebody stand in for them for a while, but they both still nonetheless turned up themselves at 5.30 in the morning and stood for two hours in, in sub-zero temperatures, queuing uh, to get in. Uh, and of course, once the event started, there were many thousands of people gathered outside uh, to support. People had come from all over Europe. People had come from... Uh, I met people who'd come from Australia. Uh, I met people who'd come from Pakistan. I met people who'd come from Peru and people who'd come from West Indies. Uh, so um, it really was quite a quite a gathering of of, of like-minded people. And there was a 
a definite feeling that this was a major turning point in history. No, either international human rights law and the idea of international courts and international justice was going to prevail, or we're going to see that all that is a thing of the past, but essentially the United States and the United Kingdom and, and their allies have destroyed the idea of international law uh, and that the only law is force and, and the ability to to kill your your opponents. And, and that was the real feeling of the event, I think. This is an absolute turning point in history where the international community uh, and international humanitarian organizations actually stand up to the United States or they are effectively finished. It was a red letter day inside, wasn't it? Uh, I have seldom seen, witnessed, uh, um, an unrelenting, brilliant, unanswerable case pressed for hours by such talented counsel uh, as I saw on Thursday in the South African case. Did it feel that way to you? It, it, it did. It was electric at times inside the inside the room. Um, and I thought what was particularly brilliant was that the South African team took a definite decision not to rely on emotion and, and theatre. You know, they could have produced literally thousands of photos of dead children. You know, of maimed children, of mutilated children, um, they could have appealed to the to the emotions in a very direct way because of the appalling things that are being done to the people of Gaza. But they deliberately did not do that. They didn't show one single atrocity photo. What they did was very calmly and rationally set out the absolute horror of what is happening in words, and and the words piled up one after another, but there was no theatrical or emotional delivery. It was reason, pure, hard reason, setting out the arguments, setting out the facts. And the facts were so horrible in themselves, you didn't need any more. And certainly um, in the uh, South African delegation, which I, I could see below me, and in the public gallery, there were tears in people's eyes. Um, the problem is, of course, the judges. I and mean, the judges just did not look comfortable. But to, to my mind, they, they looked like they did not want to be there. You know, they've been put in an invidious position where an unanswerable case really has been set out against Israel, which means against the United States and the United Kingdom as well, because they are obviously uh, implicated in providing the weapons and support and intelligence and surveillance and everything else. Um, and... You know what are the judges to do? They look like they would love to find any way of getting of getting out of this because you know they are establishment people, of course. Uh, they uh, face the difficulties that that come into your life if you stand up against the United States and and and, and Israel, and they they very much look like they would love to find a way out of it. The only times they really got animated is where. 
procedural questions were being discussed, where questions of jurisdiction were being discussed, and the question of whether or not there was possibly an argument that South Africa didn't have standing to bring the case or the court didn't have jurisdiction. Those kind of things were the only things that really made them animated. Uh, and it, uh, it, it was fairly obvious, you know, if they could find a way to duck this, then they would. Craig, I, I talked to uh, another British ambassador, retired British ambassador, uh, yesterday in London, uh, who incidentally recalled the days when he used to read your dispatches from Uzbekistan and and opined that these were dazzling, brilliant dispatches, although, as he said, focused on human rights, uh, which, of course, is what got you sacked. You were over-focused on human rights, according to the Labour Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, uh, at the time. But as a man so long in love with uh, the idea of international law, of human rights, and so on. And I confess, I never really was. I always felt it was lipstick on a pig. I always felt there was no such thing as international law. Where do you stand now as much a dedicated defender of the international legal structures and systems or and so on? Or do you feel especially if this case goes the wrong way, that it's over, that all that stuff was for the birds. Well, you're, you're right in that my entire working life and career, both when I was in the Foreign Office and, and outside, has been dedicated really to trying to make the rule of law, the rule of international law stick uh, and international humanitarian law stick. Um, the greatest blow was dealt, of course, uh, over the war in Iraq, where the UK and US invaded Iraq with their allies, uh, not only without having Security Council agreement, but in the direct knowledge that the Security Council disagreed. You know, after um, months and months of trying to get Security Council agreement, they could not get. And um, you know, I said at the time that what what we are doing to the United Nations is what Hitler did to the League of Nations or Mussolini did to the League of Nations when he invaded Abyssinia, for example. Um, so I think I think that was a huge blow. Uh, whether the structure of um, international humanitarian law could ever recover was an open question. There was another huge blow when the International Criminal Court decided that it could not uh, prosecute Bush or Blair over the Iraq war, and then decided it could not uh, prosecute British soldiers over offences committed in the Iraq war, even ones which had been committed after the uh, Statute of Rome came into effect, because their excuse about Bush and Blair was that their actions were before the Statute of Rome came into effect. So that was another blow. Um, and I think uh, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to hang on to belief in the system. There have been many ICJ judgments over the years which have been respected. And it does look, for example, as though eventually uh, Britain is moving towards respecting the ICJ on handing over control of the Chagos Islands to Mauritius, for example. So, uh, you know, there are occasional beams of hope. Um, but no, I mean, 
in this case, the case for genocide is so overwhelming, so unanswerable in logic, that, and this is such a major thing. You know, this is a genocide being carried out before the eyes of the whole world in an age where, despite the killing of journalists, everybody's been able to see it. And no, I shall, um, I shall give up. I, I, I mean, if this court ruling goes the wrong way, um, I will have to decide that the only hope for oppressed people is in, in armed resistance, and, and there is no uh, effective chance ever of, of remedy through the uh, international system. Um, and I should be very, very sad to reach that conclusion, but, but I, I, I do think that is where, where this is potentially leading. Now, the right to protect that uh, bogus substitute for uh, international law, the United Nations and the rest, devised by uh, the aforementioned Tony Blair and Bill Clinton in the Chicago Doctrine, uh, turns out to uh, exist for shipping containers too. We have the right to protect shipping containers on Israeli vessels or on other vessels going to or from Israel in the Red Sea. We have the right to make war on a sovereign country, Yemen. And now we've had three days of relentless bombardment, almost 100 targets across the country. And today, uh, a port. Yesterday, the airport, the Sana International Airport yesterday, uh, we're now at war with Yemen. I say we, effectively I mean the US and the UK again, because although there are uh, one or two satraps uh, acting as Batman for the, uh, uh, for, for the occasion, uh, the killing is being done by UK and US troops entirely without legal justification on an international level and even the rubber stamp of a parliamentary vote. We've been killing Yemenis all my life, Craig, and all of your life. I mean, it's entirely illegal in international law. Plainly, there's no justification for it. Um, the you know, the Yemenis block shipping lanes to try to stop the killing in Gaza. Um, and we respond to that by killing Yemenis, as opposed to by stopping the killing in Gaza, which would be the more logical way to uh, reopen the shipping lanes. Uh, and as you quite rightly say, this has a long, long history. Uh, Yemen was conquered by the British during the first Afghan war, in fact, uh, back in the 1840s. Um, and has a long and noble history of resistance. Of course, in the latest phase, for the last decade, we've been killing Yemenis too, really using the proxies, the Saudis as proxies, but armed with British largely aircraft and weapons and, 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 and bombs and supported by British special forces and with, with, with maintenance of all those weapon systems by British personnel based in Saudi Arabia. Um, this is just, if you like, the latest and most blatant phase. It, it, it's very horrible. I, I want to just move on, though, to um, day two of the ICJ hearing, which was just Astonishing. I've, I've only just published, literally in the last hour, published my account of day two, uh, partly because it was so difficult to write, because the things the Israelis were saying, um, you couldn't believe they were saying them. You just could not believe 
this actually was seriously being said in a in a court of law. Um, they said, for example, that the reason there were so many damaged civilian buildings and infrastructure and houses in Gaza was that they'd all been damaged by Hamas booby traps and the misfire of 2,000 Hamas rockets. And it hadn't been the Israelis who had damaged the infrastructure at all. They said that there are now 50% more food trucks entering Hamas every day than were entering before October the 7th. Uh, they said they had found incontrovertible evidence that every single hospital in Gaza was used by Hamas as a military base. I, I mean, they were just, and that's just some of the stuff they were saying. I mean, it was quite incredible. You know, it's as all they, they sat down and thought, well, how do we tackle this? And then they said, well, let's just respond with, totally outrageous and unbelievable lies to the everything and thus make a, a mockery of the entire proceeding. It, it was really, it, you know, it felt sickening. I, I felt dirty after sitting through three hours of, 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 of this. It really was astonishing to be there and, and hear such guff, which they knew was rubbish. I mean, they don't believe it. I mean, they knew the judges don't believe it. The, the purpose of it was, of course, international propaganda. Um, uh, because you know, the court's not actually going to to accept any of those things as fact, um, but it their total lack of respect, if you, if you like, their arrogance, their sense of impunity that they can just tell any kind of outrageous lie they want. Well, even mass murderers are entitled to a defence. I suppose the lawyers were only uh, saying doing what they were briefed to say and uh, do. Lots of emails flooding in uh, for uh, Craig Murray, just one, Jean Francisco Rusti. Juan Francisco Rusti, thank you, Craig Murray, for representing humankind. And there's hundreds of messages like that. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Professor Syed Mohammed Marandi is the chair of American studies at the University of Tehran. There's much to study about America at the University of Tehran. It seems for 40, 50, 60 years, maybe more, the United States has been an overbearing, usually threatening presence in, around, over, under Iran. And it's no different today. Professor Morandi, one of our most popular and learned guests, joins us again now. Uh, Professor, thank you uh, for uh, coming on the Mother of All Talk shows again. You're most cooperative, I must say. They're, they're getting closer and closer to you. Uh, do you think 
Iran is the big enchilada, that all of this is uh, an encroachment, an encirclement, uh, or other, as it were, non-Iranian uh, linked issues at play in the US-UK attack on Yemen. Obviously, Iran is not going to change its policy. Iran will continue to support the resistance in Yemen, in Gaza, in Lebanon, and Iraq and Syria. And no amount of escalation is going to change that. Iran has been under maximum pressure sanctions for many years now. And the reason for those maximum pressure sanctions is Iran's policy towards uh, Palestine. It's If Iran were to compromise with the West on Palestine, all of these sanctions would be gone. But there's a principle that the Iranians have always stated, and they've always believed in, and they will continue to pursue, and that is that apartheid in the whole of Palestine must come to an end. And uh, the Israelis, they have to set aside this regime where Palestinians are sub considered to be subhuman, and where other Palestinians are expelled from their land, and where we see Palestinians killed regularly. So these sanctions, the pressure against Iran is linked to this. Iran will continue to stay the course, but I don't think really the United States is in a position to escalate too far. And the reason is that Yemen is not the Yemen of five, six, seven, eight years ago. Just like in Gaza, we see a new a new type of, a new capability in the resistance where they've been able to humiliate the Israeli regime. In previous battles, that's not how things went. There's, the Israelis would batter Gaza, they would massacre people, and then the Gazans would maybe hit a tank or two, uh, fire a few rockets, which would usually be stopped by the Iron Dome. But now we see that Gaza, despite the uh, atrocities, despite the uh, genocide, despite what the, the Holocaust, they have been able to uh, defeat the Israelis on the battlefield. Now Gaza, this extraordinary defense capability, these underground tunnels that have been created they are something which the Israeli regime doesn't know how to deal with. So imagine what it is like for the Americans against Yemen. I've spoken to a couple of people who know a good deal about what's going on in Yemen, and they said that the American airstrikes had no impact on the defense capabilities of the Yemeni armed forces or Ansarullah, or what the Americans like to call the Houthis, or Westerners call the Houthis. Ansarullah or the Yemeni army defenses are mo are underground and they are not accessible to uh, the United States. They will come out, do what they need to do, and then go back to their many underground tunnels. And it is a huge country, a mountainous country, and there's no comparison. There's no comparison between Yemen and Gaza. And then, of course, there's Lebanon. The Israelis keep saying that they're going to 
take out Hezbollah, but they don't because they know they cannot win a war there. So I find it highly unlikely that the Americans would expand the war all the way to the Persian Gulf. That won't happen, most probably. Of course, madmen can do anything, but I'm just I'm assuming they're not that mad because the resistance would take a, a new form in Iraq. They would take a new form in Syria. And of course, all those countries that have that host American bases in the Persian Gulf region would be hostile. And all of their assets are right alongside the Persian Gulf coast. So I, I find it very hard to believe that the Americans would push it that far, especially as the war in Ukraine is still ongoing and the tensions with China, especially after the elections in Taiwan, are probably not going to get any better. Uh, I, I think that, although I do believe that escalation, we are moving towards escalation, but I think the sort of escalation that you may have been alluding to in your question is is further off. The uh, attacks, though, were substantial. Uh, a lot of assets. The German Navy is arriving uh, in the Red Sea. What could possibly go wrong? A German warship on the move uh, into the Red Sea. Um, the UK and US are all guns blazing, even though th there's not a shred of legal uh, cover for it, not even a rubber-stamped British Parliament vote, never mind international law. Uh, do you think it's just for show then? Uh, or How serious is the uh, Biden-Sunak war on Yemen? Well, it could get very serious. First of all, I think we have to sort of go back a bit. When the Yemeni Navy warned ships not to go to Israeli ports, they would not target those ships unless they disobeyed. And they didn't sink any of those ship ships. They, they damaged them to force them to leave. No one was killed. And then the Americans went and massacred uh, 10 young Yemeni sailors. Because they don't care. They don't care about human life. Just wiping out families. They're, they're like the Israelis. These people don't matter. So, the but the Yemeni armed forces impose a blockade on Israel because of the genocide, because of Gaza. It didn't begin before the war in Gaza. It began after the genocide was taking all those lives. If the Americans and the British are so upset or so concerned about international shipping, well, just a, three or four years ago, ships that were taking fuel to Syria were constantly being attacked by the Israeli regime in the Mediterranean. So why weren't the Americans or the British worried about international shipping and security and global trade? when Syrian ships were being attacked or Iranian ships taking fuel to Syria. So the issue is not international trade because the Yemeni armed forces told everyone repeatedly that only ships that refuse to obey orders that are going to Israeli ports will be targeted. But now what the Americans have done because of the attack, 
is that they force the Yemeni armed forces to say that, okay, now American and British ships and those who are involved in the aggression and the violence in the Red Sea, those ships can no, are no longer safe. So the Americans are pushing towards an escalation that will only get worse. And then if the Americans are humiliated and another ship is targeted, then they're going to have to escalate, at least in their warped uh, worldview. They'll feel that they have to escalate, and then things will get out of control. This is something that I think you discussed from the beginning of the Gaza war, is that once war begins, when it as it expands, as it, as it continues, it tends to expand. And then things happen which um, lead to reactions that cause escalation. And when, and when things escalate, it becomes increasingly difficult to control the situation. So the Americans are pushing their luck. They're pushing the conflict towards a place where there may be major conflict in the Red Sea. And if that happens, I have no doubt that the Americans will fail. They cannot stop Yemen. Yemen has prepared itself for this. Why has Yemen prepared itself for this? Because for seven years, the Saudis were bombing them day and night with American and British support. They've learned to build underground assets. They've learned to put everything in a safe place so that they cannot be bombed because they've already experienced seven years of of airstrikes, airstrikes that were carried out with U.S. support. The Saudis spent over $200 billion fighting the war against Yemen, over $200 billion. And then, of course, we had the American hunger siege. They imposed a a siege on uh, Yemen, uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Americans, preventing food from getting in. They imposed a starvation siege to bring the people of Yemen to their knees, and they failed. So how are a few Tomahawk missiles going to change the uh, situation on the battlefield? How is it going to change the balance of power? The Yemenis have already prepared themselves for such a day. I was involved in the uh, Mavi Marmara and my staff were on board the Mavi Marmara, the Turkish ship that was sailing with aid to the starving people in Gaza. Israel boarded the ship, killed nine people, one of them a joint Turkish-American citizen. Nobody did anything about that act of piracy. Professor, as always, a great pleasure, indeed an honor to interview you. Thanks for joining us on the Mother of Thank All you, Talk Shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, look, what am I talking about? Rocky and Adrian and Jamal, Mohammed, the American ice skater. Well, take a quick look at this. There is no re-entry after ice. Apartheid? 
Thank you for skating. Apartheid, huh? Of America, Winter Village. So you came over and you want to fist bump, and then you start telling me that this was an apartheid. Why are you harassing me? I just have to pause and start recording. Why? But why are you harassing me on the ice? Because you are very pro genocide, apartheid, fascist state. Oh. So when I see you in person, I want to tell you my opinion. So we're on the but ice. You you're on, we're on the ice. We're on the ice in a public space. You can't this is a public space. Public. So you expect me? Well, let's find out who he was talking to and why Jamal Muhammad joins us now from the United States. I must say, it looked uh, the best ice rink in the world there, uh, Jamal. Uh, Did all this come out of the blue? Who were you talking to? Why? And what was it all about? Well, I just want to say uh, thank you for having me on. Um, And yeah, so I was in New York visiting family. And I was ice skating and I recognized Rabbi Shmuley from Piers Morgan. And there's two videos, that was one of them. But the other video, I kind of, I recognized him. Yep, that's the face. And uh, I go up to him and I just kind of give him a fist bump and I say, free Palestine. He ends up, you know, kind of calmly saying, no, why would you say that? Why would you say that to me? And then pulls out his phone and he goes, why would you say that knowing it's an anti-Semitic slur for the death of Israel? And then starts being super aggressive and like just saying the most outlandish things um i end up just keep on saying free palestine free palestine and uh, he was really aggressive trying to get me angry trying to instigate something but my mom raised me better than that you know to get angry stuff like that and the video you showed he kind of goes off to the side yeah and he puts on these glasses and that's the video he recorded me through glasses on that one he he's not just nobody uh this is uh one of the most prominent supporters of Israeli fanaticism uh, in the United States. And there's hot competition uh, for that uh, accolade. Uh, And he's also, of course, the bosom buddy uh, of Netanyahu's candidate uh, for president, Robert F. Kennedy. God, I can hardly bring myself to say these words. What happened next? Did Did he attempt to... Uh, demonize you across the United States, across the media? Yeah, that's that's exactly what he did. He painted me as like a pro-Hamas thug, uh, a pro-gang rape. He's saying he was attacked, um, and I was super calm. I did absolutely nothing. And then he tried, he tried to weaponize anti-Semitism, and that's something people like him do. You know, he he's known for being someone to spread that sort of hate speech, genocidal speech, but... You know, his use to weaponize anti-Semitism, create these perspectives, is what fuels, you know, the the ideology of Zionism. Now, what's your background, uh, Jamal? You're clearly a Palestinian uh, American. Where are your family from, and uh, uh, what are you doing in the struggle now? Yeah, so I'm a second-generation Palestinian American. I was born in North Carolina. Uh, my mom was born in New Jersey. My dad is born in Venezuela, but both of my grandparents are from Palestine. We're from the West Bank. And right now I work with the Arab Student Association at North Carolina State University. And we've been doing a lot of things like protests, vigils. We've been holding bake sales for fundraising in Gaza to, um, to support any way possible. Well, I've seen all your videos and we've now seen you here on the mother of all talk shows. You're a credit to your parents and to your grandparents, a credit to your university. May God preserve you, and may you achieve your goals. Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. The one and only Aerobus.
is on the line from New York on Gonzalo Lira. Robos, welcome. Greetings and salutations, Mr. Galloway, and a salubrious health to you, you your loved ones, followers, and the mother of all talk shows. Um, first of all, you know, I, I, it's necessary for me to say, you know, as a, per, as a part of my core morality, you know, maybe soul and spirit of Gonzalo Lira be preserved, even though, like yourself, you know, I, I am a member of the anti-establishment left, you know, not a liberal, not a progressive. Those words have been hollowed out and destroyed mm-hmm. by the liberals, mm-hmm. you know, and that there were views, you know, like his views on immigration and things like this. I have, you know, visceral disagreements with him on. However, the fact remains, from my perspective, he, he gave his life for his journalism and his beliefs. Right? He had plenty of opportunities to flee, which is what most of us would have done. I know I would not have stood in a Nazi regime country and reported from there, knowing that I'd end up you know, dead or tortured, which is what happened to him. So in effect, he had, even though he had a different ideology to Julian Assange, he had the same core morality. And morality, it's either intellectual or we feel it at our core. This is why people change position from Ukraine to uh, to Israel. You know, a lot of the same people, these so-called uh, right-wingers, you know, they were all on board to, to be about ending the war in Ukraine and, you know, the Zelensky regime and all of this. And when it came to Israel, they're banning, deplatforming, slapping people down and all the rest of it because their morality is not felt at their core. It's a thought exercise. It's a, it's a philosophical, academic morality. And it takes instances like these in the world to show, to reveal people. You know, I, I've, been, um, I've been having this clear view about this ever since Jimmy Dore, you know, pushed the uh, force to vote, and it's been ongoing ever since. However, back to, uh, back to Mr. Lira, um, you know, and, and you know his father. From what I from what I've seen, he he came on the mother of all talk shows first, and you know which which populated the 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 media universe, and he was able to go Tucker Carlson, and he was on the Duran. You know, I can imagine his loss. You know, well, I, actually, I can't imagine his loss because I don't have children of my own, but I can empathize. And you know, and the last thing I would say, because I know there's always you know time is always against us. It, it comes back to this central point and why the work you're doing and the work of the Workers' Party and Chris Williamson and all the people on board on that is so vital and so important. Good people, they, for whatever reason, they, they don't want power, right? They think power would corrupt them. But the fact of the matter is, in your life has demonstrated this, if you're a person that's weak and you have an intellectual sense of morality, you're going to be compromised. People who avoid power, you leave a vacuum for the corrupt, the sociopaths, the psychopaths, the dark empaths. They populate leadership because the good do nothing. And when the good do nothing, evil always triumphs. This is what it comes down to. And even even the Honorable Craig Murray, who you just had on prior to the magnificent Professor Saeed, you know, even he stated this like, 
I've come to the point in my life for a man of such his caliber, his caliber and integrity to come to such a point in his life and say, you know what, even Martin Luther King, which is what we're celebrating here on Monday, I won't call it much of a celebration, more of a remembrance. Even Dr. King, to the to the end of his life, said said to the uh, to the great Harry Belafonte, "I think that I've integrated my people into a burning house. Right? We we they have reached such a resistance, such a level now that armed resistance and armed conflict." It, it seems to be the only outcome for some people. But you're, you're showing, you're demonstrating with, with, what's, with what's left that we have to take power. It's not a matter of choice or question. We, we have to do it, if not for ourselves, to preserve the world, to preserve you know, people we care about, our family, our friends. You know, without power, change is not possible. And I don't want to go on a continuous rant, but I don't think people really get it. They, they think that, you know, everyone is like them, right? Everyone believes what they believe, and if they just have the right to be let alone and live a basic life. No, there are people that want to dominate this. There are people that want to, to control us. And if we don't challenge these people directly and push them out the way, we'll be crushed. We're going into an ap- apocalyptic future like Mad Max, and we can stop that. While, and your, your example of the People's Party is the most prescient and poignant example I can muster in the Western world. And thank you to the Workers' Party. Thanks to you, uh, Mr. Galloway, and uh, more power to all of us. God bless you, Arobos, in New York for that extraordinary uh, contribution. Uh, the comments on Gonzalo are flooding in. Shamrock once said, GG, words fail me. Your monologue was extraordinary, and as always, you hit the nail on the head. I'm also very sorry for the death in captivity of Gonzalo Lira. May God have mercy on his soul. AS2023 says, Victoria Newland despised Gonzalo. And Ramplensi01 said, Mr. Lira Sr. emailed the State Department every other day, begging them to release his son, but never even got an answer from them. And EM says, he dared to say that Zelensky's regime was a disgrace, and he was murdered for it. Scott L. says, Colonel McGregor is absolutely not anti-LGBT. He is stating the obvious that all need to be up to the task, physically and mentally, in the military. Lowering standards to get into the military is bad. Uh, Kishan says, George, do not underestimate what you're doing. You are articulating what millions on this planet are feeling. You are enabling a platform for others to do the same. Become the mayor. Thank you so much, Kishan. Last call is the legend, Norma in Bristol. Norma, what would you like to say? Um, Good show, George. Good show. No, I just, you did mention at the beginning about the um, arrest of Dr. Ranjit Bra by the Metropolitan Police. This child, only four years old, on the pavement. And um, I found it very upsetting, really. Um, I just wanted to say how sorry I am. Well, it's not my fault. But it, it wasn't good seeing that, really. No, I uh, it's, it very, it's, it's, it's very distressing. Uh, we're no longer friends. We're no longer colleagues. Uh, but it's very, very distressing uh, that uh, 
All this can be done. There it is there on the screen. All this can be done to an NHS surgeon for something allegedly written in a leaflet that's being handed out, whilst children are being massacred with our active compliance in Gaza. It's truly unbelievable. Now, I don't know what was in the leaflet. I haven't read it yet. I dare say I would disagree with at least the way in which whatever was on the leaflet was expressed. Maybe, maybe not. I haven't seen it. But have we really reached the stage where a distinguished surgeon has his shoulder dislocated? Has his four-year-old child left on the pavement? Has handcuffs put on him over something written on a piece of paper? Really? I've said this before. There's a crime wave in London. Probably at exactly the same time, four people were shot and stabbed in Brixton, in South London. There's a knife epidemic. There's a gun epidemic. There's a drug epidemic. I was in a street yesterday where there's a prostitution epidemic. And yet all these police resources were deployed to huckle an NHS surgeon for something written in a leaflet that he may not even have written. Something far wrong with the priorities of the Metropolitan Police. That's all we've got time for, Norma. And I bless you for bringing that up. I need to close the show with some remembrances of our late friend Gonzalo Lira. You know, some people wrote mean things about Gonzalo. They distrusted him. They cast aspersions on what his actual true role should be and so on. And, you know, there are conspiracies in the world so it's right for everyone to be on their guard. But sometimes if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's because it is a duck. And it's now clear that Gonzalo Lira was what he presented himself as. A man with a checkered past, a man with checkered views, but a man who was brave enough to stand up to the crooks in Kiev that have brought disaster down upon the whole people of the Ukraine. The Russian-speaking people there and the Ukrainian people there, Ukrainian-speaking people there. These crooks in Kiev have caused the loss of hundreds of thousands of dead people, of the destruction of swathes of infrastructure in their country. They have poisoned relations in their region for decades to come. And Gonzalo stood up against it. He spoke clearly, too clearly maybe, against it. He was threatened 
but did not bow to those threats. He tried to flee, but was captured. The murderers were the Ukrainian state, but the murder was only made possible by the deliberate inaction, which now becomes, now that he is dead, the deliberate collaboration of the Biden regime in Washington with the Zelensky regime in Kiev. Not content with handing over hundreds of billions of dollars of the American people's money, they have conspired with a foreign government to murder their own citizen, Gonzalo Lira, of fond memory. His words will live on. His face will be remembered long after the people who murdered him in the dungeons of a dying regime are long forgotten. I have no time left. Indeed, I'm four minutes and 47 minutes over. So forgive me uh, if I now say goodnight. I'll be back on Wednesday at the later time of 9 p.m., with the midweek mother of all talk shows. And then Thursday, with no to NATO, no to war. And then Saturday, on the streets of Birmingham. See you.